Direct Solar and Storage podcast. Today, we've got Catherine Vernberg, President and CEO of Simplify. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Renee. I'm really thrilled to be here and be able to discuss issues that are all near and dear to all of us in the industry. How did you meet Stuart and get started in solar? I met our CTO, Stuart Lennox, in Ojai through a chance meeting. And like any self-respecting entrepreneur, Stuart had begun really designing and building mobile energy storage packs in his garage in LA. And wow. he was in the film movie industry. He was in charge of special effects. And this is special effects years ago in 2000. Uh, six, seven, eight, that predated everything was digital in terms of special effects. So there were a lot of uh, events that had to occur on a set um, that required power access to uh, energy. And the solution was always generators. If you were beyond, you know, if you were off site from a movie studio and very often for special effects, you're on site I always say, you know, whether you're in downtown New York City or the Amazon forest and everything in between, having generators um, is really cumbersome. They're noisy, they mm -hmm. pollute. Uh, and the landed cost of bringing in fuel just to feed massive generators to run basically lighting and camera equipment, it was just costly, inefficient, noisy, and cumbersome. So Stuart really began to think about access to energy for the film movie industry beyond the, beyond the transmission grid, beyond typical limits of where you can access power. When I saw that, uh, I, my concern really wasn't creating energy security around the film movie industry. Uh, that yeah. was Stuart's passion. Mine, my passion really came about when I looked at these mobile portable packs and thought about the impact it could have all over the world. And in 2010, when we founded the company, there were approximately 1.2 billion people that live beyond the limits of the grid mm -hmm. and were marginalized simply because they did not have access to power. So they didn't have basic lighting, water filtration, water pumps for ag or, or just living. Um, uh, medical services, refrigeration for vaccines. I mean, everything, people were cut off. 1.2 billion people cut off um, the benefits of basic services that energy su supports. So my vision, looking at these mobile portable packs, uh, was to bring the ability to people who live beyond the limits of the grid, that 1.2 billion um, the ability to generate their own power. So with solar or wind or even generators, but to optimize it with energy storage. And that was really the beginning of the company is thinking about um, creating energy security by introducing energy storage. Um, if you think about intermittency, uh, back in 2010, when we founded, mm -hmm. intermittency was cited as the predominant reason that renewables couldn't flourish, couldn't become primary source of power. Well, if you add battery storage, it removes the intermittency. Sun goes down, wind stops blowing, you've been charging up the batteries and supporting electrical loads. Fast forward to 2022 today, intermittency is every bit as relevant to the top-down centralized transmission grid. We have power failures happening all over the world, certainly all over this country. And now we have power outages that the utilities create by shutting off the power to prevent either catastrophic failures or here in California and other uh, Southwest states to prevent fires. And these are being marketed by utilities and PUCs as public safety power shutoffs. Yes, yes. Yeah. We say there is nothing safe about shutting off the power. So going back to this theme of intermittency, it was very relevant in 2010. And again, was seen as the reason that renewables couldn't be adopted on a massive scale. Well, 
Is that the reason now that the utility top-down centralized transmission and distribution shouldn't be adopted or perhaps because it's already there as an infrastructure asset shouldn't be relied upon? So again, in this new model of grid failure, what's the solution? Energy storage. And it's customer-sided energy storage because while solar farms, uh, battery farms, large-scale multi-megawatt hour are important in terms of shifting to a greater percentage of renewable power, those large battery farms are as dependent on the transmission and distribution lines that are failing and causing right. all the So what is the most significant way to create resilience and in, uh, eliminate uh, intermittency, whether it's the utility shutting it off through PSPS events or just overburden the grid and failures or catastrophic weather events. If people have energy storage batteries in their homes, their businesses, their schools, communities, they can store power and use it, I always like to say, on their terms when mm -hmm. they need it. And, and that's a game changer. And so that's what the vision was, again, going back to 2010 and founding, looking at energy storage, in my view, to solve real problems around access. So beyond the limits of the grid, the 1.2 billion, you know, which are probably estimated 900 million today in 2022. So we've made a little bit of progress mm -hmm. bringing power uh, to those communities all over the world. Um, but energy storage solving also for removing intermittency. So in my mind back in 2010 meant that we would uh, create a greater percentage of renewable generation by combining solar and wind or hydro or whatever it was, but solar and wind uh, with energy storage and thereby creating uh, access to power 24 seven. Um, and so energy storage is really critical to facilitating the transition. And that's where <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, and that's so inspiring. I mean, it really, I um, kind of talking about what you first mentioned with so many people without power. Uh, one of my most rewarding experiences in my life had, was going to Peru and installing just really small solar lighting systems up in the Andes yeah. uh, because they didn't have any, there was no electricity. And, you know, we installed small 12 volt batteries, a small solar panel and a couple of light yeah. switches. And, you know, but that uh, to them was really game changing. And, yeah. uh, you know, the adoption for storage uh, is more prevalent than ever because especially, I mean, not only in California, but I mean, throughout you know, the world, but here where PG&E is regularly shutting off power, even SCG&E, SCE, uh, you know, it really, it was astounding to me that yet again, just a few weeks ago, we had, we took the whole team last time and, you know, we closed our operations for the day. We headed up to LA and like, hey, no, net metering, like we need this uh, because they're going to tax it even with storage. Yep. And in my opinion, too, it's, uh, you know, even if you're not going to give as much money for over excess power that you're pushing back to the utility, you shouldn't be charging a fee just for having storage. Maybe it's just like rollover minutes. If you don't use it, you lose it. But that way, at least you can put it back into your battery bank um, uh, yep. and just save it for a later uh, time. Do, what do you think? And do you have any insight to the percentage, like the utilities are pushing for large scale uh, storage systems to balance and mitigate some of the- Right, because they the, control and own the asset. Uh, yeah. And they don't wanna change their business model. So the utilities typically 30 year contracts for infrastructure, build out, upgrades, hardening the grid, whatever it is. Um, so of course they're looking for large scale megawatt hour storage installations. and. I'm not saying it's an either or. So yes, those have value, but they're not going to create resilience. And right now, the economic losses, if we look at California as a case study, mm -hmm. um, it is billions of dollars in economic losses every time PG&E has shut off the grid. And there's, there are numbers that came from Professor Wara out of Stanford University. Um, I believe it was the first two weeks, a couple summers ago, that PG&E shut down the grid. Um, it was estimated over $2 billion in economic losses were incurred. 
And that didn't include uh, displacement, um, loss because of fires and uh, loss of property, et cetera. So that two billion add to that some of the other losses that are caused by uh, power shutout, power failures. It's not sustainable. The business model is not sustainable. So what you mentioned earlier, yes, the PUC, which the commissioners are appointed by our governor. Where is Governor Newsom in all this? The PUC is enabling utilities to what's being called charge a solar tax or charge any kind of additional tax on people. Hardworking citizens of California are using their own money to build in assets in their homes, to create resilience and to generate, to offset what they're pulling from the grid. So rooftop solar and batteries. And why are the utilities, and especially the PUC allowing this, the PUC should represent the public interest. That is what their mandate is. And yet they are supporting the interests of utilities, allowing them to even have these ridiculous hearings of which, and I've been on all of them, to hear from the public and over 400 each time have called in and now more recently meetings at the PUC headquarters, how many times do they have to hear from Californians that they do not want a solar tax, they do not want an energy storage tax, it's enough that we are spending our hard earned dollars to build in this infrastructure into our homes, our businesses and communities, because the utilities are not. And they are wanting to tax us to create reliable access to power, which is part of the utility mandate. So we are using our own dollars, going after rebates or incentives wherever we can. Um, and the utilities are trying to make it harder and harder through the solar tax, the battery tax, and all the barriers that they create for interconnection. Just getting a permit can take nine months in California for a home. That's way too long, and that's I, I mean that's that's unacceptable. I mean the the length of time. I mean you you almost are forcing people to just go do it anyways, and then wait. Uh, so it's you know asking forgiveness versus permission, and that's not the right way to go because you want to make sure that they're doing it the right way. Uh, right. Why and do you think that it is? Oh, sorry, and the one point the utilities are claiming that one of one of the. Uh, uh, populations they're championing are underserved communities. And they have a whole marketing campaign trying to convince the public that, well, solar and batteries are just for the wealthy. But CALSA, are you familiar with California Solar yes. and Storage? Yep, okay. we're members uh, with them. Okay, so yeah. they are doing an amazing job and they have the data that, that demonstrates that uh, in this day and age, the solar plus rooftop, uh, sorry, rooftop solar plus battery proposition mm -hmm. is not just benefiting the wealthy and it is not only the wealthy or upper middle class or even middle class. Um, mm -hmm. And they have data that show how significant rooftop solar plus batteries in multifamily units, uh, low income underserved communities, how these assets benefit them because it's cost savings daily, shaving off, you know, eliminating time of use, peaks, whatever it is, um, and they are being installed. So there's an economic basis to this proposition that the utilities ignore um, and don't take into account. Right. And I mean, with so many different meetings, with so much opposition uh, to uh, the new net meter, NEM3 that's, uh, that they're proposing, why do you think that they're I mean, it's all, it's money. <laughs> at the end yeah. of the day, yeah, it's a, you know they're doing it for their shareholders versus uh, the people. But there were so many other uh, op options. Uh, so PG&E wasn't the only one that uh, put together a proposal for the CPUC. Uh, why do you do? You, uh, since you've been on the meetings, I'm just curious. Why are they just dragging their feet and dragging this out for so long instead of putting incentives like connected energy back in New England? You know, that's one of the programs and similar to SGIP, but even SGIP is, you know, for fire prone areas, which is great, but you should really have it, have another program for everywhere else <laughs> and uh, to be able to incentivize it. Yeah. Um, well, the answer is money and money is in politics and also, um, legacy industries that tr try and use regulation to protect what they have. Mm -hmm. um, so the distributed 
energy generation and storage is disruptive to the business model and the infrastructure model that we've had since the 1900s. It's disruptive. People are becoming their own power plants. They can turn their home into a generation source and then they can store energy and use it when they want. It, it, it is reducing what they pay to the utility and the utility is uh, fighting back against people's right to generate and store and utilize power on their terms. The utilities do not appreciate that. Now, I have always said, again, this is not an either or proposition. We have worked with the utilities for years, um, more sort of forward thinking utilities that aren't afraid to change their business model from the 30 year uh, large scale infrastructure projects and are looking at their customers as partners. Utilities that are incentivizing and supporting distributed customer-sided assets, predominantly batteries for the resilience, the backup when the grid fails, but also uh, batteries with generation rooftop solar. Um, and so it's, it's really utilities that are trying to preserve and protect their business model and prevent disruptive technologies, disruptive business models from interrupting what they do, right? And the, that's, that's the I bottom mean, line. And, yeah, and, and what's really problematic <laughs> about that now, there are studies that demonstrate, if you look at what the dollars that are required to upgrade the grid, to meet the growing population, the growing demand. It's like a trillion of, dollar bill from Biden. Right? Oh, it's, <laughs> it's a trillion and for transmission and then a billion for the distribution. The money isn't there. This mm -hmm. delta is, and the money isn't there. The delta is significant. And the time to build this these large scale infrastructure projects. Mm -hmm. So what's the solution? What's more immediate and cost-effective? distributed energy storage, distributed energy generation assets. And that is what every community, business owner, homeowner is doing in California, all over the country and all over the world. They see it and that's what they are moving forward to create their own security. But it's a huge loss for utilities to not participate um, and really look at their customers as partners in solving for these issues, CO2, all the climate related disasters that are wiping out the infrastructure, right? right. Um, which, yeah. <laughs> it's which, the most compelling reason <laughs> to provide more incentives in the first place, because there's a time, I mean, there's not enough time to wait for the infrastructure to be able to come back to support all the growing energy demands. So the incentive has to be now with independent uh, rooftop and solar and storage systems. Right. And uh, it's very- But it's happening even of, without incentives. I mean, yes, right. it would be nice if the utilities provided incentives and saw their customers, or as they say, the ratepayers as partners, but they don't. Mm -hmm. But even without incentives, it's penciling out. I have a very small six panel array in my house and a couple of batteries, and I've been able to uh, take off probably, uh, I've reduced my utility bill by 80%, if not wow. more. And that's a very small system. Mm -hmm. The economics play out whether you have incentives or not. And so whether the utilities fight and continue to not even provide incentives, but to try and add the solar tax or the battery tax, they ultimately cannot prevent the wave of demand because people are losing so much by losing power. So they will do it themselves. Yeah, they're going to do it anyways. Uh, just for energy security, they're paying too much for peak uh, peak use periods, and they just want to be able to take control. Uh, and they don't want to see those consistent rate increases because it keeps going up year after year and month after month. Especially with like we're using uh, EVs too. So that's a that's a huge role. If you want to have a bunch of electric vehicles on the road, then you're going to have to have the infrastructure to support it and why wouldn't they be able to fill up at home? <laughs> so right, exactly. like, you, you have to have it there. Uh, do you think that some of the UL requirements, 9540 and 9540A, uh, do, 
do you think that those are really designed because from a safety standpoint, it's it's absolutely needed? Or do you think that's uh, something that came about just to kind of slow down the adoption uh, just in general for solar post storage? So that's relatively newer uh, with some of the yeah. systems. <laughs> Uh, that's an interesting question because I do think in some respects the requirements, the newer requirements, UL 9540A, the fire safety testing, mm -hmm. and then the 9540 certification based on 9540A fire safety testing, um, they are newer and they are in some respects slowing down uh, adoption. However, and and there's a lot of uh, consternation and focus right now on how to make these tests and the process more effective. Um, but these tests and the standards really came about because of the continuing fires that mm -hmm. we see across energy storage manufacturers and markets. So the most notable and publicized is the large APS fire in Surprise, Arizona. Mm -hmm. And that was, uh, well, I won't mention the manufacturer, but the studies are out, but that was NMC chemistry. So lithium, ferro lithium cobalt based chemistry. And it's the cobalt that is creating these thermal runaway um, and with fire and uh, explosive type properties in lithium ion batteries. And those batteries, it was a large multi-megawatt hour installation mm -hmm. and it was pouch. So, and NMC chemistry, cobalt-based lithium. What we see in the press though, anytime there is another fire explosion, I mean, honestly, that battery was manufactured by LG Chem. It was mm -hmm. sold under the Fluence label. Um, LG Chem is on their fifth major battery recall for yeah. Resi systems. And that is what Sunrun and other companies that utilize the NMC and Pouch, which is one of the cheapest ways to manufacture mm -hmm. chemistry, um, that has put other companies at risk. So going back to your question, is 9540A and 40 slowing down the process? Yes, we have to do a lot to streamline. It's a new standard, a new certification. However, if you look at the fires in, in the, that continue from residential to commercial to large scale utility, there has to be something put in place that can help customers and the customer can be a homeowner, solar installer, project developer, university, hospital, whoever is looking at what is available on the market to purchase to create security, energy security using storage, they need some sort of independent data to make that assessment. The problem mm -hmm. is, in my mind, that every time there's a fire, the press, even NRTLs, the National yeah nationally recognized test laboratories like UL and Intertech, no one talks about the differentiation under lithium ion chemistry or lithium ion chemistry and form factor. And so in the press, you'll see a headline, another lithium ion battery catches fire and the entire industry, including companies like ours, gets a black eye, even though we don't use and purposely chose when we founded the company that we will not use cobalt-based lithium chemistry. Why? Because we look at energy storages to create security. We look at energy storage, create resilience and to uh, usher in a greater percentage of renewables. So why would we use toxic, hazardous, unstable chemistry and a cheaper form factor mm -hmm. that would give us a price advantage in the market, but it puts our customers at risk why would we choose that if we're trying to create resilience and energy security? And if we're trying to create a greater percentage of renewables, why would we store solar electrons in hazardous batteries that could catch fire, overheat and blow up? That is not sustainable and it's not very clean. So for us, it was just something that it wasn't even a choice when we found it. I personally was part of all the tests that we did in our back parking lot and in our own facility <laughs> where OSHA knew about it. But um, we tested every single chemistry that was available, LCO, NMC, NCA, LFP, lithium ferrophosphate, 
hands down, whatever the form factor, cell form factor was mm -hmm. the safest. We could not force that chemistry in the cylindrical cells to go into unmitigated, unlimited thermal runaway, could not. And mm -hmm. so we tested the chemistry and then pouch, prismatic, cylindrical, and cylindrical was the safest. So we took a hit in terms of price point on the market. We were willing to sell based on quality, safety, and longevity and sell at a slightly higher price because the truth is companies that continue to use NMC, LCO, NM, uh, NCA, they have a price advantage over us. Mm -hmm. Customers don't know this. So going back to 995, 40A and 40, I think the one limitation other than no one's differentiating across these chemistries, what is the safer chemistry, LFP? What is the safer form factor, uh, cylindrical? Um, the other problem here is that companies are not publicly releasing their data. And of mm. course they're not. And so as a company, we've decided we will publicly release, it's on our website, um, our 9540A test data so that fire departments, AHJs, um, people who are permitting, SGIP, uh, whoever it is can look at our test data because we have validated that even when you force our batteries to heat up with these heater wraps, and that's part of the 9548 test protocol, you forcibly heat up our batteries and you have to because they don't heat up to the extent they go into thermal runaway on their own. Even when they're forced, they do not go into unlimited propagation. It's contained, uh, the, the battery doesn't overheat to the extent that it goes into thermal runaway, catches fire, much less explodes. And that public information, that needs to be public information, again, so that consumers can look at these new standards, 9540 and the test data, 9540A, the public can look at the data and make a decision. Informed purchasing decisions drive markets. More oh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> they do. I mean, that's uh, one of our goals and uh, our focus for as a business is to educate and, and promote uh, a clean energy storage solutions. So uh, we're always uh, just making sure that they have all the data. But I, I didn't realize until you said that, uh, Catherine, that other companies that manufacture storage uh, don't share that data. I thought it was something like from like a science perspective, you'd have to you'd want to have it peer reviewed. And it seems like from a chemistry, if you're looking at like different types of uh, the form factors and uh, the different types of cells and the different types of actually uh, the chemistry that they're comprised of, why why wouldn't you share that data? It seems like everyone should know and then you can still have a competitive market. You don't have to do it the same way. You could have different sizes. There'd be a lot of still exactly. differentials there. Yeah, exactly. And to your point, let's say, I mean, I heard one large, commercial developer say to me recently at a conference, you know, we have to take price point into account. So yes, we chose NMC because it has a lower price point in the market than LFP. And so my question was, what price are you putting on first responders or human lives or loss of property or damage to property because the batteries fail, because they catch fire? So that's one question. Um, you just but, went for it. I, I love that. I mean, did, did they have, what did they say? Well, the, <laughs> not much, because then the second point that I made was you can't put a price on that. But also the truth is, while companies, our competitors, we all, we all give a price per kilowatt hour, right? Mm -hmm. We look at, customers are looking at batteries, large commercial to small resi, how much does your battery cost on a kilowatt hour basis and how many cycles? So what's the value that I'm going to get out of that battery over its useful life, right? The dollar mm -hmm. value. So we might be slightly higher on the upfront kilowatt hour price per battery, but what the 9540A and 40 certification will indicate is you may save money on the rated nameplate capacity upfront you're gonna pay dearly at the point of installation because based on that chemistry, that form factor, that manufacturer's data and test results, now you're going to have to build in 
air conditioning, cooling, thermal monitoring, uh, mm -hmm. sprinkler systems, sandpipe installations, which are tremendously expensive, uh, deflagration mitigation. So uh, you're and part of the mitigation for deflagration is a very large radius around the battery installation so that if it explodes, mm -hmm. there's minimal risk to human life and other property built into the system. So these you can use NMC. If this if this data is published, people can decide, all right, our upfront costs um, are significant to us. But then they see at the point of installation, oh, all the money we thought we saved by purchasing a lower cost battery, like pouch, NMC or NCA, we're going to uh, surpass at the point of installation with all the mitigation equipment required based on 9548 test results and the 9540 certification. And that's what customers need to see. And that's why companies need to be put under pressure by customers demanding to see the 9540A and 40 data. You know, I, I love that. I think we're going to push for that. Uh, you know, we uh, I agree that uh, that information should be made public and people should be uh, fully aware of what they're buying and the differences between the technologies and just to, to make informed purchasing decisions. We, right. Uh, the consumers today are so much better informed because of the internet and the ability to have all the information at their fingertips that uh, I really do think that uh, that would be very compelling information that would justify an additional cost. And when you break it down per you know, megawatt hour, which may for some homeowners might be a little bit um, a little bit difficult to understand, you know, just right off the bat. But I think if you explained it and just showed, you know, well, this is like the amount of time and the price per know, kilowatt hour and over, you know, megawatt hour usage, uh, it would really hit home. And uh, I'll, I'll let you know how it goes, because that's something that we're, we're doing is that we've compared multiple different batteries, including Simplify and Simplify uh, came out uh, on top, which is uh, just really exciting. Uh, you know, just well, that's to, always nice to hear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, and really, and it's, um, it was for the lifespan and the price per kilowatt hour and uh, the amount of uh, power uh, current that it can provide. Uh, it did win out, and there are batteries that are also good that have a you know, but at a lower price point and have a little bit lower cycle life. So you can have options. It's you know, buying a Mercedes exactly. versus a Ford or Toyota. They're not bad vehicles either one, but one's a little bit you know, a little bit more luxury can probably do more, has more features and benefits and. Uh, or, or some have greater risk, right? And, yeah. and that's allow people to decide what level of risk they want to take on, right? If, if you want a lower cost, but you understand that there's greater risk and that you have to build in some mitigation around that risk, and you're willing to pay that price literally and also figuratively when there's a failure or a fire whatever it is, then make that decision. But what, what's happening right now, again, going back to the press and even the NRTLs, mm -hmm. we, Simplify Power, has been part of their education around the 9540A testing protocols. Um, we went through the first 9540A test with our battery module and the NRTL, which I won't mention, but the NRTL said to us, your battery failed the test. Why? Because it didn't catch fire. Because it explode. <laughs> and it, in truth, it's not a pass fail. 9540A is to characterize what happens to that battery, that module, uh, when you forcibly heat it up. And it's supposed to create a profile, a characterization of that battery's failure, which is very useful information. But when our battery first went through, based on the, the protocol and the heater wraps built into the battery, it didn't go into unmitigated thermal runaway and it didn't catch fire, much less explode. So we had to repeat the test. Uh, did so they have to increase the temperature rating or? Uh, we had to, we had to put more heater wraps into our battery to effectively demonstrate, okay, with these heater wraps, 
it went into thermal runaway. And in our case, because the cylindrical cells are so safe, thermal runaway for us means the cell gaskets open, release pressure, which is part of the safety built into the cylindrical form factor and the chemistry, the lithium ferrophosphate. Um, but only two additional cells in a battery with over 300 cells are 3.8 kilowatt hour phi and amplified battery, only two additional cells that were surrounded by these heated cells went into thermal runaway, but temperatures de-escalated without any mitigation or outs, out, um, uh, without any intervention to reduce temperature. That is the safety of our chemistry and the cells, the form factor and our proprietary construction of the battery. Even when they're forced, they will go into thermal runaway, open, release pressure, and the temperatures de-escalate, everything de-escalates, and there's no fire, there is no explosion, and no uncontrolled propagation across the hundreds of cells in the batteries. That's what we've been able to establish, and we, we had to go through the test a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. each, each time costs about $70,000. Holy moly, and that's a lot. Uh... That's a lot <laughs> just to get yes. it tested to prove that it's safe. Uh, is that the standard cost across the board? Do, do you know just for any type of like like safety rating test or is that for It storage? depends. So it depends on the safety rating test. So the industry standard for years has been 1642 at the cell level and then 1973 at the battery or module level. 1973 is also a very, a very sound data set because they test for safety with the BMS built into the battery and without. So they stress test the cells, overcharge, over discharge, uh, et cetera, sense. with and without the BMS. And in that test, the 1973, we have no thermal runaway, no thermal runaway. It is documented. Then introduced to your question, um, the 9540A, which you have to go through to get 9540 certification. Again, you go through the cell. So the individual for us, uh, LFP cylindrical cell, you go through that, that's about $50,000. Then you go to the module level, that's depending on the NRTL, 60 to 70,000 can be $80,000. Then you go to the unit level because our batteries are scalable. We look at batteries as building blocks. Mm -hmm. We want customers to be able to purchase exactly what they need in terms of kilowatt hours. Um, and so we wanted to get 9540A tests done at the unit or system level so that we can scale up into 136 kilowatt hours, for example. And that test is 90 to $120,000, depending on the NRTL. So if the NRTL, says that they made a mistake on their test protocol, which they did. Um, they required us on our dime to go through the test again, because the protocol for 9540A was still being developed and it's still being developed and protocol is shifting over time, which also creates um, confusing data. But that again is why the public needs to be able to access this test data and the reports. So they know what they're buying and they know what they have to purchase at the installation and what additional monies and space is required just to install a 20, a 40, a 60 kilowatt hour system, much less hmm. a higher megawatt hour system. I, I agree completely. And uh, I'm gonna take a look to see uh, what information I can find just offhand as you know, just taking a look to see who does have it published. Uh, is there any? Well, I will say we've started. Yeah. <laughs> a, we've yeah. started a cascade because we were the first to publicly publish. Mm -hmm. I've been getting on podiums, like I was just in uh, Boston at the National Fire Prevention Association conference, and there I made a presentation on our 9548 data. I spoke to these issues, even firefighters and FPEs, fire prevention experts. Um, they don't know the differentiation across lithium ion chemistries. So mm -hmm. everybody in the industry still needs to be educated to understand that chemistry matters. There are choices. Form factor matters. There are choices. 
manufacturing processes matter and that there are choices and that each of these have a different safety profile that has been characterized by 9540A testing. Um, and so, yes, people need to ask for these tests and the data and use them to inform what their choice will be in what they purchase for whatever their project is. I'm with you 100%. Uh, that information should be uh, readily available to everyone. So including <clears throat> the inspection from you know, AHJ to the building plans uh, and department to uh, installers, uh, users, so the consumers, uh, that's vital. Uh, do you think that there's gonna be any uh, new uh, technology advancements, whether it be in either the chemistry or the uh, type of cell that's used, or do you think Simplify uh, will continue to use the cylindrical and LFP uh, moving forward if you like five, 10 years from now? Um. Oh, five, 10 years from now, I have confidence there are going to be great advancements in energy storage. So we, we have our own test and validation and research and development building and are constantly testing, receiving uh, pre-commercial cells, chemistry, form factors, always testing and looking at what is going on in the industry. Right now, we still find based on all our in-house testing and validation that we do that LFP, the cylindrical cell um, are the safest and the most efficient uh, and long lasting. And we're always laser fo focused on the customer what is important to them, right? It's cost saving, it's longevity and the safety. Um, but as technologies continue to be innovated, we, I mean, we're already testing and looking at uh, these other technologies. So for example, LFP can be uh, purchased in prismatic form too, which, so our cylindrical cells, if you imagine um, a double D battery or a C battery. Mm -hmm. Tesla uses what's known as 18650s that are like double A batteries. We use larger cylindrical cells that are known as 26650s, little technical, but those have such a safe profile, even though we could purchase um, and manufacture batteries based on LFP prismatic, which are much longer sort of uh, rectangular um, larger cells, but they don't have the same safety profile or longevity. So we could gain, again, price point advantage in the market by doing what some of our customers are doing that are using LFP, but they use prismatic or even worse, pouch. Pouch is the, is the cheapest form of manufacturing a mm. battery cell um, because pouch expand and contract just through the uh, electrons flowing in and out during the charge and discharge cycle. When you have uh, expansion and contraction, you have heat generation just through the normal functioning of the battery. Um, so it's because they're all connected together, right? Whereas like cylindrical and prismatic, they're all like, they're more independent of each other. And that's why there's more structural integrity, right? Okay. Because yep. the cylindrical cells are, are built with different types of alloy, whereas the pouch is very flexible and then they're crushed, you know, they're compacted all together mm -hmm. to try and mitigate that expansion. Um, but the reason we don't use pouch or prismatic, even LFP, again, that some um, competitors are utilizing, it would give us a tremendous price point advantage in the market, but we're not willing to do it because fundamentally it's putting customers at risk. Mm -hmm. And we look at customers for the life of the project. As long as that project is there, those are our customers. And we will provide any type of technical support throughout the life of our batteries and the system generally. Um, and so we are not going to use a cheaper form factor or chemistry or manufacturing process because we can have a competitive advantage in the market, but down the road, customers are dealing with failed systems, hazardous systems. Oh, it's awful. Uh, you know, we, uh, we definitely take a lot of pride in making sure that the products that we offer to our customers are uh, are safe, reliable, uh, secure with our manufacturers like Simplify. Uh, but their LG Chem, we didn't do a lot with them, but we did some and it's awful because they, you know, it's 
some of our installers still are like, well, you know, the customer says that it's it's just remained at 70% charge the whole time and they can't get support on the phone or anything like that. So it's it's definitely important to make sure that uh, that you're using quality materials. Uh, to your point where uh, you mentioned that uh, battery technology will continue to evolve and uh, ultimately just continue to improve. Hmm. Do you think that we get a lot of um, customers and some of our installers are like, well, you know, should we should we just wait until the technology improves? And what would you say to that type of uh, consumer that's looking and exploring battery storage uh, today and, you know, thinking, well, should they wait or should they actually do it now? Well, they want to wait, wait. But the reason <laughs> customers, the reason I uh, put in a system is because I have regular power outages and mm -hmm. I'm in SCE territory here in California. Um, the disruption to my life, to basic systems I have at home because of a power outage, um, it, it has an economic cost for right. me. Our, our offices are now our critical, uh, our test and validation center and our engineering offices are all backed up by our, our own system now. Um, so to That's your question, should people, wait? <laughs> yeah. should people wait? I mean, there's always innovation. Um, and there is always something that's going to come out. But my answer and what I see in the market as a company, our year-over-year -year growth, is that mm -hmm. right now the need is so great because of power outages, catastrophic weather, um, taking control of your own power. Um, it all has economic benefits that make a difference. So being able to reduce time of use charges which are huge in some territories, um, as high as 67 cents um, in some areas in California. And then you have demand charges on top of that and then peak charges and all these different tiers. The, the savings on utility rates alone um, makes, makes a significant difference. And then just quality of life, you know, whatever dollar, uh, value you put on that. Um, so I would say it's, it's a very personal decision. Can you wait if you have a business? Probably not because of the economic losses. Um, mm -hmm. if, uh, if you have an eye on the future and newer technologies, um, that, that's just part of this whole process of evolving. Um, but for me, I've never thought about future progress as a reason to delay any decision now on currently the progress that is currently available to us. Yeah, and that's a good point. And, you know, and if you work with a company like yours and you see your products that are backwards compatible, which I thought is uh, really great about your newest battery uh, and ESS system that's come out. So uh, even if they did purchase uh, the a different, whether it be the Simplify or Amplify, uh, and then I want to go for a higher capacity battery, they'll still be able to have options and have it integrate. So they're not really they're not really losing anything by getting it today. They're gaining uh, the security that they need, especially with they're working from home, which a lot of people now are. So, I mean, that's if you're not able to work, then you're uh, most of us wouldn't be able to make money. <laughs> that's yes. why you're, 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 the the opportunity cost is too great to not have it. So, I'm I'm with you 100. Uh, percent you know, and thank you again so much for uh, taking the time today. I, I would love to keep our conversation going, uh, to be honest. <laughs> this <Yeah>. is uh, <laughs> fantastic. And uh, you're just uh, such a wealth of information. Uh, it sounds like you're very active and uh, just on multiple boards and flow to Boston, like you said. Uh, what's next on the agenda? Uh, do you have anything that's coming up that is kind of, it's, it's a big deal that you're excited about? Well, a big deal. Everything's a big deal. You <laughs> right. know, and I say that, um, I say that sincerely because every time like I have an opportunity to be in front of uh, customers and potential partners. Um, and so different uh, members of our team are always traveling like Iken is currently uh, in the West uh, Midwest at, at a show partnering with one um, uh or several of our other partners to be there. I, I guess in answer to your question 
is RE, RE Plus, right? That used to be mm -hmm. SBI, the biggest trade show. In right. the um, so that will be an exciting show for us. I guess that would be the next big thing for us because um, since the acquisition by Briggs and our companies coming together, this will be the first trade show where we have a very large booth with both companies represented and the launch of our new Simplify ESS will be displayed in the booth prominently. And so that'll be very exciting, especially again, because the Simplify ESS was really designed to be scalable, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so many, many of our competitors and even our access unit, you know, you're kind of confined by what is in a container or mm -hmm. uh, a cabinet. And we've approached an ESS where it's vertically integrated by virtue of the firmware and software that connects those assets into an ecosystem for your home. But if you have low electrical loads but need hours of duration because of power outages in your area, you can scale the batteries, the kilowatt hours, independent of the power, the inverter. You don't have to buy a pre-prescribed set of equipment in a cabinet. Um, on the flip side, if you have larger electrical loads, um, but don't require so many hours of duration, you can add two, three, four, five, et cetera, up to nine of our six kilowatt inverters. And this ability to scale independently and over time, let's say it's a home or a business and you add electrical loads, new equipment in your facility, add some more inverters. Multiple inverters create redundancy in a system when things mm -hmm. uh, can go wrong during power outages or whatever else. And so our deal of off grid and just need no, it. exactly no. off grid. So we, we think about scalability, being able to scale power and energy independently, think about redundancy. We're always thinking about safety and security in terms of resilience. And then of course the mobile app the software and uh, the firmware and software platform that we've been able to create, again, putting visibility into the installer's hand. So our installers, commercial partners can manage fleets of installations remotely, change settings, all the rest of it, um, but also homeowners have this beautiful mobile app. I check mine every day. And they can look at what their assets are doing, right? And what their electrical loads are and how much sun they're generating, um, uh, how much power they're generating from the sun on their solar panels. So the ESS, the launch at RE Plus will be really exciting to really give people an opportunity to interact with and experience this ecosystem that is very scalable and really can be customized to what the project requirements, what the needs are of that person, that project, mm -hmm. that school, that hospital, et cetera. It's uh, gonna be a very exciting SPI, no doubt. Uh, you know, I think everyone uh, for missing it, uh, you know, I a few years ago <laughs> and the year before yeah. that it's uh you know everyone's really gearing up and there's just uh so many uh new exciting technologies to explore especially uh the new ess with simplify um i'm excited to see you there it's uh i that's where we first met i don't know if you remember this this was years ago maybe like I think it was probably, it had to have been like six, six years ago, something like that. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. it's been a while and, uh, you know, time flies and, you know, I'm just, uh, it's, it's been a great, a great ride on the solar coaster. I had a little hiccups here, you know, supply issues and, uh, but we've, solar co you know, it comes back up and it's always full circle. So it's, uh, it is. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's very, it's, well, you know, and I don't know how you feel, but yeah, I, I remember it was like six or seven years ago. And what I find kind of disappointing sometimes is that we're still talking about these same issues and mm -hmm. fighting for the same rights that we were back six, seven years ago, right? Uh, the right to install assets, you know, rooftop solar and batteries in our own homes, businesses, communities. So it's kind of discouraging. I mean, the industry has made a lot of headway, but no thanks to kind of the entrenched incumbents 
gas and oil, the utilities, PUCs, again, there are exceptions, but we're still fighting a lot of the battles that we were six, seven years ago, or when we founded 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, it is uh, it's unsettling. Somebody at the rally uh, last week, and I forget um, forget their name, uh, honestly, but they were one of the speakers at the uh, at the LA event, and they were mentioning just breaking the utilities apart into smaller sections. And I think that's a great idea because each one of them could look at like the communities that they serve and really, you know, probably have a lot more value propositions to be able to mitigate and still be profitable at that level if they were smaller and actually looked at their needs. It might be just that they're so big and just serving their shareholders that they, they genuinely aren't paying attention, uh, which is which is disappointing. Uh, we'll continue to fight the good fight, and you know we'll we'll show up again if they have another rally. You know, exactly. Uh, we're not going to stop. This is our livelihood, and it, people have a right to uh, clean, independent power. And yes. fossil fossil fuels are are not working out. I think uh, everyone that's paying attention understands. You know, let's have some climate action uh, to the climate conditions that we're seeing uh, surface more and more, and uh, independent power is the, the way to do it. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you've mentioned fossil fuel and, and very often in our industry, people talk about cost versus price. You know, mm -hmm. People say, well, energy storage or solar or wind, it's, it's too expensive. Well, no, all over the world <laughs> and certainly in the US, um, solar has outpaced and is cheaper than top-down centralized fossil fuel uh, generation and distributes transmission and distribution mm -hmm. um, but what i see as a real problem is we don't talk about cost and price and differentiating between the two meaning what about all the externalities that are associated with fossil mm -hmm. fuel from extraction refining to distribution transmission all the rest of it those are real costs mm -hmm. we may not be paying for that at the the gas station in terms of a gallon of fuel, though now we are in terms of the rising costs or, or plugging into our wall socket, but we are paying dearly on the back end mm -hmm. through subsidies that are still being paid to ExxonMobil and other massively profitable gas and oil companies. So these subsidies that very often people who like to say renewables wouldn't be cost effective with incent without incentives or subsidies. It's just not true because it's mm -hmm. penciling out now. But also if we're gonna talk about eliminating subsidies, let's create a level uh, playing field and eliminate mm -hmm. the subsidies for gas and oil companies and the tax loopholes that allow them to write off the losses when they have an oil spill that destroys whole industries like the fishing industry in the Gulf, et cetera. So right. um, there's just so many problems when we talk about price versus cost and that we don't have econometric models that build in the true cost of fossil mm -hmm. fuel, extraction, refining, uh, distribution. Um, it's, and we need to start looking at what those costs are because as you say, climate, you know, climate, climate related disasters are increasing mm -hmm. in uh, duration, but also occurrence. And it's on an upward trend. And that's pretty scary. Yeah, there's a lot of people being displaced. And uh, it was in the Middle East, they, they keep getting floods. So they started all their new hospitals or, uh, or a lot of them are built on boats. Yeah, because they're going to get flooded and the whole thing is going to be washed away anyways. Uh, but I'm I'm on, uh, let's partner up. I'm on the team, let's do it. And uh, if there's uh, anything that uh, we really, uh, myself, EcoDirect can do to uh, you know, participate in getting the ear and making some of the changes, uh, please do let me know. Uh, it's, I, I think uh, you know, the, the time is now, I don't wanna yeah. wait. And uh, you know, it's, uh, if, they're, if they're not hearing us, maybe we just have to get, talk a little bit louder <laughs> and yeah, exactly. uh, you know, get them riled up um, because it's, it gets me riled up and, uh, and hearing how you speak to it, you're so passionate and uh, well-informed and uh, just very active uh, in your role and what you're doing for the industry. I just, I, I think that's fantastic and uh, just amazing. Well, so. Well, thank you. But you too, EcoDirect and these podcasts, I mean, you are actively engaging the industry, right? And yeah. pushing it forward. So 
I really appreciate that. I really appreciate being invited to participate um, because it, it really does matter. It makes a difference um, what you're doing and providing these kinds of discussions that people can listen to and uh, gain more insight into some of the issues that are impacting them directly that they may not otherwise be aware of. Thank you. That That's the goal, education at the forefront and providing all the knowledge uh, for us too. You mentioned you published the UL 9548 uh, testing. Uh, we do that with permit plans and kind of finding yep. these uh, myth busting with, you know, why are you well, you're not meant to uh, wire 12 volt lithium batteries in series for a 48 <laughs> volt system and things like that because people are right. doing it. And I just don't think that they know not to. So it's, you know, we'll keep doing it. And uh, it'd be wonderful to have you uh, back too at some point. And, you know, and of course, uh, looking forward to seeing you at uh, at RESS. Uh, yes. Actually, I think it'll be exciting. It looks like there's a lot more that's going to be going on. And SBI was has always been a huge event anyway. So uh, this one, uh, you know, it's sure to be one to remember. <laughs> yes, so, I think uh, so. Yeah, me too. Well, um, just because it didn't get re recorded initially to uh, Catherine Runberg, uh, CEO and president of Simplify, thank you uh, for joining today. And oh, thank you, Renee. <laughs> you're, really. you're very welcome.